Great, that's Matthew 16, verses 1 to 12. And you'll see on the screen there what page number that is on in either the large print or normal church Bible. Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today, it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves from the five thousand and how many baskets full you gathered? Or the seven loaves from the four thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thanks, Nath. Good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to you this morning. If you want to keep that passage open, and I'm going to pray for God's help as we look at it together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've just read of how slow the disciples were to understand and to accept your word to them. Lord, please guard us this morning that we wouldn't be as slow. Help us to be quicker to understand and more willing to accept and to put into practice in our lives everything that you would teach us this morning. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've um, heard the story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson when they go camping together, but after a long day's walking, they're pretty tired, and they pitch up their tent, and they turn in for the night. But about three o'clock in the morning, Sherlock Holmes is awake, and he nudges Watson, wakes him up, and says, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me, what do you see? And Watson says, I see millions of stars. And Holmes says, what does that tell you, Watson? Watson replies, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and we are small. Horologically, it tells me it's about three o'clock. And meteorologically, it tells me that it should be a beautiful day tomorrow. And he turns back to Holmes and asks him, Holmes, what does it tell you? And Holmes replies, Somebody stole our tent. <laughs> you see how easy it can be to miss the obvious. 
We can be forever looking at the detail, analyzing every possible outcome, deliberating every possible scenario, yet miss what is staring us right in the face, that somebody stole the tent. And while it might not have been a big deal for Dr. Watson here to miss the obvious, it can cost us everything if we miss the obvious when it comes to Jesus. And that's exactly what we see as we journey through Matthew's gospel together. People who meet Jesus face to face, yet fail to see and accept the obvious. And all four gospel accounts testify to this same great reality that God has made himself abundantly clear, perfectly clear. The fullness of the presence and the power of God in the person of Jesus Christ. God walked in this world. He left his footprints in the Jerusalem dust. Footprints that can be traced all the way to that little hill just outside the city walls of Jerusalem where he carried his cross and laid down his life for you. You see, God walked in this world 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born into this world. He grew up to be a man. He loved and he cared and he taught and he healed and he died on a cross with our sin upon his shoulders. And he rose to new life to prove to this world that he is indeed God. Yet sadly, as we journey through Matthew's gospel, we meet many people who fail to see and accept the obvious, just like Dr. Watson. And you know what? The same thing is still happening today. People are meeting Jesus in God's word, but are walking away from him unchanged. In our passage this morning, we meet two groups of people who are both in danger of doing just that. In verse 1 to 4, we meet the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are quick to dismiss the person of Jesus. They just want him out of their thoughts and out of their lives. Get rid of this man. Quick to dismiss Jesus. Then in verse 5 to 12, we meet the disciples who are once again slow to understand and accept the teaching of Jesus. A slowness of understanding that brings a gentle rebuke from Jesus in verse 8. O you of little faith. Quick to dismiss and slow to understand are our two points this morning. Firstly then, let's take a look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who, as we've said already, are quick, too quick, in fact, to dismiss the person of Jesus. Have a look at verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. What a remarkable verse that is. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed about almost everything. But here they are, united now in their opposition of Jesus, testing him, demanding a sign from heaven to prove his authority. Jesus, where are your credentials? 
Jesus, where's your certificate of theological education? What gives you the right, Jesus, to make the claims that you do? It is a bold and blatant dismissal of the authority of Jesus. And of course, in its context, this challenge is all the more remarkable, isn't it? Because everywhere the Lord Jesus went, there was evidence in abundance. His credentials were clear for all to see. In fact, in the last two chapters alone, he's fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He's walked on water. He's healed the sick. He's liberated the demon-possessed. And most recently, the end of chapter 15, he's now fed the 4,000 with seven loaves and just a few fish. But still... After all that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together and they demand a sign from Jesus. And so he replies, look, in verse 2 and 3. When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today, it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. To paraphrase Jesus in our language, red sky at night, shepherds. Red sky in the morning, shepherds. You see the point Jesus is making? You can look up at the sky, says Jesus, and you can assess what the weather will be like. You can interpret the signs there, the signs in the sky, but you are blind, says Jesus, to the signs that have been performed before your very eyes here on earth. Signs that really matter to us. You see, everywhere the Lord Jesus went, there was evidence in abundance. Big signs, clear signs, visible signs, pointing quite clearly to the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. You see, the problem isn't with the evidence. The problem isn't with God not making himself known. The problem is with those who look at the evidence, as Jesus goes on to explain in verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left and went away. The word adulterous that you see there in verse 4 speaks of spiritual adultery. It's a picture of running off after other gods and other things rather than committing ourselves fully to the one true living God. And Jesus says one of the marks of living in a wicked and adulterous generation is a refusal to believe and a constant demand for more evidence. And on that basis alone, I think it's fair to say that actually the generation in which we live isn't much different to the generation in which Jesus lived. A refusal to believe and a constant demand for more evidence. One of the most common questions that you get asked as a Christian, why doesn't God make himself clearer? It's a question. It's a challenge, it's a frustration that will be expressed in a whole range of different ways. And often like the Pharisees here, it's born out of a desire to just dismiss Jesus out of the picture altogether. It's not an authentic question, it's not a genuine question for many. For others it is. 
It's a real genuine desire to know and to be sure that God really does exist. Why doesn't God make himself clearer? Well, the answer's there, look, in verse 4. And sorry if this sounds a little bit harsh, but it's the answer that Jesus himself gives. Why doesn't God make himself clearer? He doesn't need to. Because he has already in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the point Jesus is making with reference to the sign of Jonah that he makes mention of there in verse 4. If you've got your Bibles, just flick back actually to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 40, because Jesus has already explained this little reference to the sign of Jonah in more detail, in more depth there. I'm going to pull up verse It's not even on the screen. So let's read it together. Verse 38 of Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Deja vu. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, just as Jonah was plunged into the watery depths, spending three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish before being spat back out onto dry land, so the Lord Jesus descended to the grave. He went down to the depths before being risen from the dead on the third day. You see, the sign of Jonah points to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the empty cross and the empty tomb, the boldest evidence, not just for the existence of God, but for the love of God, that God himself left heaven and entered this world to put things right forever. And so you know what, if you ever doubt the existence of God or the love of God, where do we go to be sure? Where do we go to know that God loves us and entered this world and really does exist? We go to the cross. We go back to the cross. As the Apostle Paul says, look in Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates, do you see that present tense? God is demonstrating right now, not just his existence, but his love for the people of this world. How? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, past tense. God is demonstrating his love now by pointing us back to a past reality. If you want to be sure that God exists now... If you want to know for sure that God loves you now, where do you go? You go back to the cross. The most remarkable act of love that is embedded within the very fabric of history. God's love for this world is absolutely immeasurable. He doesn't just exist somewhere. He loves the people of this world immensely. So please don't ignore 
says Jesus, what is plain before your very eyes. Don't demand more from God when he's already revealed himself fully. Don't ask the Lord Jesus to jump through hoops for you when he's already carried his cross for you to Calvary and laid down his life. Because if you do, the response will be the same. It's at the end of verse 4. Jesus then left them and went away. Firstly then, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were quick to dismiss the person of Jesus. And we see it all too often today. But secondly, as we come to the disciples, we see how slow they were to understand and to accept the teaching of Jesus. In verse 5, it's a new scene, but it's the same day. And this conversation, this interaction Jesus has just had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's still playing on his mind as he jumps into a boat to head across to the other side of the lake. And so we read, look in verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Now, the, the, uh, the mistake, the first mistake the disciples make isn't too serious. In fact, it's something that we've all done, right? They forgot to bring any bread with them. In our language, they left their sarnies on the kitchen table. And we've all done it, yeah? It's a little bit annoying when you forget your lunch. I do it most weeks. Then they're eating Helen Walker's cake all day on Tuesday. A little bit annoying when you forget your lunch. But it's not the end of the world, right? It's not actually that serious. That's the first mistake the disciples make. But their second mistake is far more serious. You see, Jesus is still troubled about that conversation he's just had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you can see that in verse 6, can't you? Be careful, says Jesus. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus is concerned about what these two groups of people are teaching. And about the spiritual damage that they are doing to God's people. Yet the disciples in verse 7 are more concerned that they left their pat lunch at home. It's amazing, isn't it? But what a snapshot of the world that is today. The eternal soul. The eternal soul and the glory of God is at stake. In the faithful preaching and proclamation of the gospel, yet often people are more worried and more preoccupied about material things that will be totally meaningless on that final day. When we stand before God Almighty, so many things that occupy our minds and our time now will be totally irrelevant on that final day. Oh, to occupy our minds with eternal matters, with the reality of the eternal soul and the glory of God himself. And so Jesus says, doesn't he, in verse 8, he's aware of their discussion. And Jesus asked them, you of little faith, 
Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Providing lunch for 12 people is not an issue for Jesus Christ. He's just fed 5,000, five loaves and two fish. He fed 4,000 with seven loaves and two fish. Forgetting their bread is not a problem. We're talking about the creator of the world, the abundant, glorious provider that is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus isn't bothered about their tummies. He's bothered about their hearts. He's bothered about the eternal reality of the soul. His concern is not the absence of bread. His concern is the presence of false teaching that derails the church, destroys faith and dishonors God Almighty. Which is why he says again in verse 11, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And notice that Jesus still doesn't answer them clearly, does he? But he pushes them to think again, simply repeating in verse 11 what he's already said in verse 6. You see, that's the way that God often works, isn't it? Sometimes we'd love a simple, straightforward answer, but often God doesn't give it to us. He pushes us to think again, to discern, to listen, to get the word of God open and to prayerfully ponder what he has said to us. And when we do that, clarity often comes as it did for the disciples. Look in verse 12. Then they understood. They got it at last. That he wasn't talking to them about guarding against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The big thing on the mind of Jesus here is the false teaching. And in verse 12, he draws this clear parallel between what yeast does to bread and what false teaching does to the church. And you see the impact of both is subtle and it's penetrating. We just got ourselves a bread maker, as you do when you live in a village. And uh, I'm going to show you, I'll say our first attempt. This is actually Han's first attempt at making bread. This was, the, this was the first attempt. And it was exactly the same as the second attempt as well. Okay, so it went in the bread maker. I'm pretty sure we put yeast in, but if we did, it was old yeast or dud yeast or something. It didn't work. Two and a half hours later, out pops a solid lump of dough that you'd lose your teeth on if you bit into it. That was attempt number one and two. So Ham went down to the shops, got some new yeast. This wasn't it. This is a couple of weeks later. This is, this is what it came out like. And it's amazing, isn't it? See the difference between those? What's the difference? A little bit of yeast. One little bit of yeast does that to that. It infiltrates the whole batch and has a remarkable effect on the final loaf. And Jesus says, you know what? It's the same with false teaching. 
just a little bit of false teaching infiltrates the whole church. It has a subtle but penetrating impact. And that's what Jesus is warning us of here in verse 6 and verse 11. Against the yeast, the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now the exact content of the false teaching is maybe a little bit of a puzzle. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees actually disagreed about a whole host of things. So to keep it simple, I'm going to try and make some broad generalizations here about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And firstly then we have the Pharisees that you'll see there. There's a little table coming up on the screen. The Pharisees distorted or undermined the word of God primarily by adding to it. We've already seen this back in uh, Matthew chapter 15. The addition of tradition. Gospel plus. Adding to the sufficiency and the fullness of God's word. And you may remember the verdict of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Pharisees, you heap so much extra stuff, human stuff, regulation, rules, traditions, on top of the word of God that you almost nullify it altogether. The addition of tradition. And if I could generalize here, that's maybe more like the the Catholic Church and the High Anglican Church today. The addition of tradition. That's what the Pharisees were guilty of. But then we come to the Sadducees, who weren't so guilty of undermining or distorting the word of God by adding to it. Their problem was they were more in danger of taking away from the word of God. We read in Matthew 22, verse 23... That same day, the Sadducees who deny the resurrection came to him with a question. They deny the resurrection. I've called it the subtraction of supernatural action. Okay? Pharisees, addition of tradition, heaping loads of other stuff on. The Sadducees, the subtraction of supernatural action. Gospel minus, they were taking away from God's word. Happy maybe with Jesus... As long as we don't have to believe in the feeding of 5,000 with five loaves. The walking on water or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To generalize, I think this is more like the liberal wing of the church today. Happy with the historical figure of Jesus, but dismissive of the supernatural. Which in the end leaves us with a moral code and a moral teacher but no saviour and no final victory over death. And so Jesus says, be on your guard against both, adding to the word of God and taking away from the sufficiency of the word of God, because both, both are alive and kicking within the church today. And so as we draw to a close, can I make three quick applications for us that I think emerge from this passage? And the first one is this. And it's more of a challenge or an application maybe to those who don't yet trust in the Lord Jesus as their saviour this morning. Could I say to you, please don't be too quick to dismiss Jesus. You may have lots of unanswered questions. You may be like Dr. Watson, analysing every possible outcome there is. Please don't do that at the expense of missing the obvious. 
what God has made plain and clear to us. That he loved us enough to leave heaven and walk in this world and die on a cross for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Secondly, please be aware of being preoccupied with material things. We live more so than Jesus' day in a highly materialistic culture. And there's a real danger. A real danger that just like the disciples, we can be worried about and preoccupied with so many things that really will be meaningless on that final day when we stand before God Almighty. When there are more legitimate things to be concerned about. More legitimate things to occupy our minds, i.e. the faithful proclamation of the gospel. The salvation of people who don't yet know Jesus. The joy and the flourishing of God's people, the church, and the glory of God. Will we let these things occupy our minds? Things that will really count when we stand before our creator on that final day. And then lastly, please remember Jesus' warning. We've spoken about it hopefully in a decent amount of detail. But the warning there again in verse 11, be on your guard against the teaching, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For those of you who've been with us in the evenings and we've looked at uh, the Reformation in three parts, a three-part series, you'll recall that many of the reformers lost their lives. They went to the stake because they were not willing to budge from what God had said. They submitted to God's word in its fullness. They sat under its authority, every single word of it. The truth, the whole truth, all of it, and nothing but the truth. And that battle that the reformers fought 500 years ago is the same battle that's been fought since Genesis chapter 3, right? The word of God was undermined in Genesis chapter 3 by Satan. The word of God was undermined in Jesus' day by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, adding and taking away from its sufficiency. The word of God was undermined during the Reformation by the Catholic Church. And the word of God is still being undermined today and if I could be specific as we finish as we draw things to a close I think the biggest danger for us as a church today a church here is that we take away from the word of God the disease of the Sadducees you could say I don't think maybe we're going to deny the supernatural the big things that we want to hold to and cling to But very easy, we can just brush over parts of God's word that we don't like. Parts of God's word that may be cut against the culture that we live in. And we don't dismiss them outright, but we'll just slide them to one side. Leave them to the edge. But you know what? Every single word in here is the word of God. And it is there for our good and for our instruction. So let's not pass over any of it. Because it is there for our good, for the good of the church and for the glory of God. And so do you know what? Like the reformers, 
if we choose to stand on the word of God, every single word of it, there will be a cost. There is. There's always a cost. If you stand, if you build your life and everything upon the revealed word of God. And as J.C. Ryle says in his commentary, and with this we'll finish, against both errors, let us watch and pray and stand upon our guard. Let our principle be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. Why don't you take a minute just to ponder God's word to you, what he's had to say to you this morning, and then we'll respond by singing a couple of songs together in a moment's time. Just take the one thing, maybe, the one standout thing for the next minute, and pray that into your heart for the good of your soul and for the good of each other. Just for a minute, let's do that together. Uh, But to encourage us as we leave, as we seek to be faithful to God, to never add to the gospel, to never take away from the gospel. Let me close with the wonderful words um, from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Uh, He finished his letter by saying, Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Lord, we commit our hearts to you this morning. We thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for the grace that you continue to show us through Christ. And we pray this week that you would help us to be faithful to you and to live each day in the strength that the Spirit alone can bring. Thank you for the joy of knowing you. And please help us to share that joy with a lost and broken world as we serve you this week. Amen.